0: From the vibrant heart of the UAE to every corner of the world, welcome to Season 2 of the International Classroom Podcast. Here, we not only explore education through a global lens, but also celebrate the unique needs, experiences, and perspectives each student brings. In each episode, we bring you insights and discussions from experts and educators around the world. They share their invaluable experiences, the challenges they faced, and the innovative solutions they championed. So, whether you're an educator, a student, or simply someone with a passion for lifelong learning, we invite you to be part of this journey. Now, before we dive into today's episode, a quick note. Ensure you're following us on your favourite streaming platforms to always stay in the loop. And if you're tuning in via Deep Teaching on YouTube and you haven't clicked that subscribe button yet, do us a huge favour, do it now. We've been privileged to host some truly remarkable guests, and your support in sharing and liking these episodes means the world to us. On to the episode. Craig, thank you ever so much for joining us on the International Classroom Podcast today. Um, You will be probably best known for your book about trust-based observations. And I want to say it's, it's a new approach to classroom observation, but it has been around for a few years now. And The kind of resolving aim for it is about fostering trust, collaboration and growth among teachers and school leaders. But to start us off with, can you tell us what trust-based observations are and how they work?
1: Yeah, it's um, really at its core, it's a series of 20 minute unannounced observations and unannounced uh, is actually a good thing. People worry about it, but people, when it's announced, what do people do? They put in extra effort, it's human nature. And they worry because because teachers are worriers. and so actually they especially once they experience the positive nature of the reflective conversation, they appreciate that they're unannounced, so they don't have to worry and don't have to plan. And then when when it's an, uh, when it's announced, also I just I feel compelled to share these little pieces as as I unpack it. When it's announced, then the conversation afterwards is not authentic because it's not I'm. I tend to teach in order to get the boxes ticked as opposed to what I might normally do. So then how does that inform growth whatsoever? It doesn't. The other funny thing about unannounced is actually teachers semi regularly will say, uh, It actually helps keep me on my A game, knowing you're coming, but not knowing quite when you're coming, which I think is kind of funny too. So anyway, they're unannounced, um, 20 minutes unannounced. It's a continuous series cycle of them. When I wrote the book, I said 12 per week, but really now what we say is once every three to four weeks. And we actually track them and we we mark whether we see you in the beginning and the middle and the end. And so over the course of the year, we'll see you in all your different subjects. We won't see beginning, middle and end of all your subjects, but we'll see that and we get to really big piece of it. So that's that. And that's the observation itself. I will say the observation form we use only has nine areas of pedagogy on it. And and research from the New Teachers Project, or TNTP, says any more than 10 indicators uh, when we're doing observations, and it tends to become a tick tick box exercise. And we don't really see the craft and art of teaching, and I do believe teaching is craft and art. And so we have nine areas of pedagogy in using our form, and it's super specific form. And when people first see it, they It looks really daunting, but the details that it allows us to capture is part of what allows us to be so specific with our, with our praise and with what, with the strengths that we share, which helps to build trust too. So really that's the core is the observation piece, but the magic is in the reflective conversation, the reflective conversations always happen the next day. And, um, so it's really about building trust. And and if you don't mind, I'm just going to go ahead and explain a little bit about that. Does that sound Okay.
0: Please do, yeah.
1: Okay. So I, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Brene Brown. Have you? Yes. Okay. It, when I'm overseas in America, everyone's heard of her outside of the <laughs> US. And so anyway, she's a sociologist, and I think part of the reason she's so popular is she's very colloquial. She's of the people and doesn't write like she's in an ivory tower. So she talks about the connection between vulnerability, trust, and risk-taking. She says that vulnerability in and of itself is not a bad thing. I tend to think of it like the amygdala in a way. It's there to protect us, though sometimes it can get in the way too. And I think the same thing with vulnerability as a teacher. If I'm feeling super vulnerable, maybe that's telling me something's wrong and I need to be aware of something. And so our job as school leaders is to lower teachers' vulnerability uh, so they can feel safe taking risks. And so the way that we do that is by building trust. Brene Brown, when she talks about trust, says, think about uh, like a vase, a vase, and, and it's putting a marble at the time into a vase. And really, that's what the reflective conversation is. It's putting a marble of the time into the vase. So now I'm going to tell you about all the marbles that we put into the, into the vase. And so... The very first thing that we do is we have the reflective conversation in the teacher's room and we always say whether you're set and that's our first marble, whether you're seven, 17 or 37, getting called to the principal's office feels like getting called to the principal's office and tell me, I see you nodding, tell me you haven't, or our audience, nobody's had a time in their life where they got an email from their boss asking them to come down and you have that panic moment and it's nothing. It's just what our brain does. That's the amygdala piece, right?
0: The irony is I had this exact same conversation with my head of school the other day And, it, I kind of said that to him. Everyone just has this preconceived idea. You get a, meet, a message or something, come and see me, and you start to panic like you've done something wrong. And it, our leader, my new, my head of secondary at school, is fantastic. He's like, no, 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 I don't. I want <laughs> culture. I want to be able to have that. So he values he values the conversation and the understanding of that people can feel this way. And he's like, oh, how do I how do I remove that? How do I how do I remove this idea of or this concept of that you're in trouble, you've done something wrong, or you've got to come and sit on the naughty chair type of thing
1: don't email them, go see him. That's how you do it. The other's just human nature, I think. So anyway, that's the first marble. The second marble is when we get to the room, it's a little marble. It's a little courtesy marble. We just ask permission. Hey, is now a good time? It's that simple, but it's a little respect that builds trust. And I can't really explain how other than I can just tell you it does. The next marble that we had is that we sit beside you, not across from you. And psychological research on hierarchy in the workplace says that when we sit across from each other, that magnifies that hierarchical difference. But when we sit beside each other, that minimizes that difference. And so I'll just tell you that I I have boy, girl, twins who are 21 now, but my daughter did fit the stereotype of sullen teenager from about 14 to 17 and wouldn't talk. And and yet we'd go on a hike where we're one in front of each other or we're in the car and she'd just start talking, talking, talking. And So there's something about that sitting beside each other, and though teachers don't have quite the same desire for autonomy that teenagers do, I don't think they're all that far off because if you think about it, we just like to close our door and do my thing, right? That's autonomy. And so somehow sitting beside it makes people feel more comfortable. The next marvel is that just like we're looking at screens right now, the form is right in front of both of us. We're being transparent. I'm not hiding anything from you. The next thing that we do, we we really think is a handful of marbles, not just a marble. And we start the conversation not by telling you what we saw. We start it by asking you questions and saying, in in doing so, saying, I value you as a professional and what you think about your practice and I want to hear. And so we always start with two questions. The first question is, what were you doing pedagogically speaking? what strategies were you using to help students learn? And then we add another marble when we ask that question as well. And we say, look, I definitely wanna hear about those 20 minutes when we were in there, but we also know when we're observed that every once in a while we think, you came in now, you just missed the best part or the best part was right after you left. So we always just say, if that happened, please tell us about that too. And it's a little thing, but it makes teachers feel safer, right? It builds trust by saying that little thing. So then we write down their answers and uh, we actually work to reframe their language into the pedagogical language of of practice and of the form. And, uh, and in so doing, it makes teachers more purposeful in their practice. It has this bizarre magical effect of doing that. And so I'll give you an example. So a teacher might say, so then once the kids started working on the lab, I went around and checked on everything, made sure everybody was on task, made sure they understood what was going on. I'd help out some of the kids that weren't getting it. And then there was a group of like three or four kids. I don't know. You saw I went and talked to that one group. I could tell they didn't get it at all. So I just found a different way to reteach it to them. So I don't write that down. I write down and then tell the teachers back, oh, you were formally assessing, providing descriptive progress feedback and differentiating or adapting your practice to meet the needs of your kids. And so when we do that, it's funny. Sometimes people will say, um, well, don't teachers get mad that you change your language? And that never happens. They always say, oh, that sounds way better. Thanks. Yeah. So, Um, so then we share back the answer showing we're listening and then we'll ask, is there anything else? That's another little trust marble. And it's amazing how just sharing back their answers, uh, gets them to talk more. And so then the next question that we ask is if you had the opportunity to reteach the lesson, what, if anything, might you've done differently? And we add another trust marble on that one. And we just say, look, teaching's hard and sometimes not as much as we want. When we teach, we nail it. When that happens, I want you to tell me and I want to celebrate it. I never want you to feel like you have to manufacture an answer because I'm asking this question. And so and then we'll say at the same time, though, we know most of the time when we teach, we think, oh, next time I'm going to or I wish I would have. And then we ask the question again and we write down their answer to that one. Then at this one we look at is kind of a reverse trust marble. We don't say, is there anything else on this one? Because we think if we say, is there anything else, they might say, oh did I get something wrong? Right. And so then the next trust marble is we literally tell them what the goal of trust-based observations is. And we said, Hey, next we just want to tell you what the goal of trust-based observations is. It's for me and everyone else in the building that does observations to build a trusting enough relationship with you and everybody else in the building so that any one of us can come in and observe you, see you trying something new, And even though it's highly, highly unlikely, have it be a disaster, a train wreck. And yet, as opposed to maybe a more traditional observation where you're thinking this cannot be happening to be today. No, 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 no. You're not worried at all because with trust-based observations, you already know what's going to happen the next day. You know when we come into your classroom for the reflective conversation, we're going to say, I love it, Alex, that you were taking a risk. That's what matters most high five, fist bump or whatever. And then we just say, because when we've created conditions of trust so that you know that exists, what's gonna happen? You're gonna persist in taking risks. So is every teacher in our building. And when that happens, we know we're necessarily gonna grow individually and collectively, and we're gonna do what our number one job is improve the teaching and learning in our building. We literally tell them that. And every once in a while, I'll actually get people a little teary-eyed just at just hearing that, which tells you more about maybe their past experiences than it does about trust-based observations. And so then really after that, then we just start sharing the evidence of and every little piece of evidence that we share in there is is a trust marble. Right. And I'm sharing some specific praise about something that I saw you do without ratings. And really, that's that's the model at its core. We don't offer suggestions the first three or four times. Uh, and then even when we do, we ask permission and we can go into that later. But that's the core of the model.
0: It's amazing. There's so many things that resonate with me there in terms of, I don't know a single teacher who has gone through their career with all amazing observations and feedback. I guarantee, listening to some of the things you've said, that there's teachers out there that have had terrible experiences, like you've just highlighted as well. Um, But it kind of, that whole model is amazing. It's amazing. But I want to kind of take a step back, because I'm really interested about what inspired you to write the book.
1: Yeah. I don't know for sure, to be honest. I mean, I, when we went overseas to the, internet, the American School of Warsaw, one of the principals said, oh, you ought to become a principal, Craig. And my first thought was the dark side never. <laughs> but then I was flattered. And I do remember this, that when I started my program, I would talk to people about observations because even when they were done really, really well by somebody that was really good at them in the traditional format – they were so isolated so far away from each other like they tell you something you did well maybe offer a suggestion on something but then when you have the other one the suggestion that was done before that doesn't even come up again like how that's progressing or anything it's a whole new isolated thing and I would talk to people about that and they would generally say yeah I know I know I know but what are you gonna do and so when I started my program I was fairly dejected about it not I'm kind of wondering why I was doing it but my very first day in my supervision course, the man that's now my mentor, he said, you have to be in classes every day. You have to be supporting teachers, helping them grow, engaging in conversations about practice. And that's your number one job. And it was like a light bulb went off, that, that the hallelujah, because like I, I knew I wasn't alone. And in his class, we would practice observations. We would bring 10-minute mini-lessons. And then we would script back then and then we would immediately follow that with really those two questions. What were you doing to help students learn? And if you had the opportunity to do it again, what would you do differently? And so by the time I got my certification, I was really confident in my practice. And so it just And I got really lucky. My first principal let me start doing this and teachers responded so well to it. And I didn't know I was developing to anything. It was just what I did. And yet it did evolve over time and evolved. And we added an observation template form at some point. And I would say maybe when I was in Brazil, the head teacher there said, Craig, I want you to show the other teachers what you were doing. And I believed in what I was doing and I knew it was dramatically different. But that was the first time somebody had asked me to do anything with it. And so I was, we would meet every Monday and then about three months in, the elementary principal, I said Craig, you have to protect your work, and I was like naive, oblivious to what he was talking about. And he said, "No, like this, this stuff you've created it's yours. You don't want to make anybody to take it and claim." I was like, "Oh, thanks." And then, really, maybe that started it because I thought, "Wow, maybe I should present at a conference." Like, and so I did, and it went really, really well. Then I thought, "Wow, maybe I should." Write an article and it got accepted right away. And then, just due to some circumstances that required us to head back home because family stuff happens sometimes. Uh, at that point, I thought, oh, after, before that, I thought, oh, maybe when the kids graduate, I'll start, I'll make a book out of this. And then, when we came home, we had some money saved. And so I went to a coffee shop Monday through Friday like a job and wrote the book. So that's really, I mean,
0: it's a, a labor sense. a labor of love it sounds like
1: I, I i'm super passionate about it because i know i know it works
0: that's amazing because I was, that's kind of brings us nicely into the next one about you know trust-based observations versus traditional observations yeah. um you know i'd like to get to a point and this is from my own where it's just observations are just they don't need to be specially labeled it would be nice to get to that point where we don't have to. It's just everyone works off that, but we're not there yet. Let's let's go back. We're not there yet. So, how would a, a trust-based observation, in terms of even the evidence of impact, how does it differ from a, a traditional observation, in your opinion?
1: Oh gosh, in so many ways. Um, you know, I think maybe this point, maybe the best thing to do is is uh, like. There's six pieces of research that kind of lay out the difference and maybe sharing the research, because then for those that are empirical, it's also going to help them as well. Does that sound okay?
0: That's great. Yeah.
1: Okay. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, are observations as, current, as they're currently functioning, working? And luckily, there are two big studies that have come out in the last five years that tell us about that. So in 2018, the Gates Foundation's study on the Measures of Effective Teachings final report came out. And it was a seven-year, $575 million study designed to, quote, improve uh, the quality of teaching, student learning outcomes, and graduation rates through the development of a more robust teacher evaluation process. In six of the seven school districts, or local authorities for our UK audience, um, <coughs> because I've been training enough in the UK now to know that. Um, In six of the seven districts, they did a model called Danielson, which is one of the predominant models in the U.S., and many international schools know that model as well. And they thought, well, if we do it with absolute fidelity to the way it's designed, because sometimes it didn't work out the way they're designed, then then we ought to see that improvement. So the results come back, Rand, Rand Corporation's final study comes out, and this is a direct quote, no sustained improvement. So that's the first thing telling us it's not working. And then the second piece of research comes from the Annenberg Foundation. In November 2021, I'm reading Education Week, the leading education magazine, K-12 in the U.S. I see an article on teacher observation. Obviously, that draws me in. I look at it. It references a, a study that just came out by the Annenberg Foundation and it was a 9-year meta study that looked at all state reform education evaluation reform efforts over 9 years 2009 to 2018 and their uh, report no improvement so that tells us probably what we already knew it's not improving teaching and learning so the next question becomes well what why right that's important to know why are there any clues and there are clues the very first clue comes from the late 60s and early 70s and that's that a harvard the clinical model of observation which is the first maybe formalized modern model of observation and that's the pre observation conference observation and post observation conference that we all know i don't know if you know this that actually came from the way teaching doctors do medical rounds with residency students where they go around in a group, they say, okay, you're going to examine this patient. What are you going to do in the examination? You go watch the examination and then afterwards you tell us how it went. Same thing, right? With teachers except our classes. So when that when their model came out, they said it's really, really important to focus on strengths. It's a super vulnerable position for the person that's being watched to do this. But for our purposes, they said the important clue was they said it's really really important that we separate observation for evaluation from observation for growth like retention from growth so that's the first clue charlotte danielson whose model i talked about earlier in 2000 in her own book she said that observation for growth and evaluation are largely incompatible but she suggested we find a way to merge them anyway and then in 2003 strong's Teacher Handbook on Evaluation, and this is No Child Left Behind in the U.S. is big legislation that we think played a big part in this obsession with accountability, both testing of students and teacher evaluation. And he said because of political pressure, we need to find a way to merge them, even though many people say they're completely incompatible with one another. And so those are the clues, but what's the research say? So in the U.S. in 1983, there was a report issued by the Reagan administration called A Nation at Risk that was hyperbolic and largely inaccurate stating that the state of education in the U.S. was a complete disaster. The following year, to their credit, they had a subdepartment department of the Department of Education do a study on good teacher evaluation practices, thinking that if we can find some good practices, we can use that to help everywhere, right? So as they start to do all these studies of schools and districts all over the country, they start to see a pattern. And so then they pose a question. Can one observation tool serve two purposes? Can it both... Be used first to support growth and to make evaluative retention decisions. So they go through and they look at all these case studies. The studies answer, so their research says no one tool can only serve one purpose well. So that's telling us part of the reason we're working; it's not working is we've got something doing evaluation and growth at the same time. The question becomes why? What happens when that happens? And so. From that, we get Matt O'Leary out of the UK. In my mind, he's the top observation, evaluation researcher in the world. His research shows that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate or grade teachers, and he does mean pedagogy because I've reached out and spoken to him, the following things happen. Relational trust between observer and observee is diminished, which means I as the teacher don't trust you anymore. And then as a result of that, what happens? I tend to play it safe in my practice. And as a result of that, there's less risk taking and innovation in my practice. So now we know what's going on, what's causing it. So then the question becomes, well, what does work? What can work? And so one, I've already talked about that new teacher project one that in any more than 10. So we've only got nine and you think how bloated some of these observation forms are. Actually, it's funny. The new teachers project said observation rubrics need to go on a diet. <coughs> and uh, so, but what does work <coughs> is uh, there's a book in 2002 called Trust in Schools and it was Chicago public schools in the 1990s went through a time of big educational reform and these educational researchers, Brick and Schneider, studied what was going on in Chicago public schools. During that, they published the results in this book in 2002. So their research shows, and this just blows me away because it's so obvious and elusive at the same time. Their research shows that relational trust is central to academic improvement. Like you think about everything else, and they're saying, yeah, it really boils down to relational trust. And so this is what their research found out. Relational trust reduces the teacher's sense of vulnerability, and that acts as a catalyst for change because it creates safe spaces for teachers to be able to experiment and take risks in their classroom, in their practice. And that's really, I mean, I gave you pieces of research and evidence, but really that's what the difference is. And so what do we do? We only have nine areas of pedagogy. What do we do? We don't rate pedagogy. We have a separate evaluation form that we do things like professionalism, planning, how you get along with others, what's your mindset about growing. And then what else do we do? We work diligently, as I already explained to you when I talked earlier, to build trust. And what's the result? Teachers feel safe taking risks.
0: It's amazing. I think over the last few years, um, and probably with the development of the internet as well, um, you've got You mentioned Brené Brown earlier, um, but people like Simon Sinek who have come out and and lots of things, they talk about psychological safety, like how do you build a culture? How do you build these workforces? Or was it Jim Brown that wrote from good to great? And a lot of that, all of those things are about psychological safety and, you know, people feeling valued and being okay to be vulnerable. And it's amazing now it's starting to Well, we want it to shift further into education i don't think we kind of see education or schools as teams um like i'm a, a head of department and i don't particularly like calling it a department i prefer to call them a team you know in terms of therefore it changes your mindset about what you do with things and how you approach things um rather than just as a department and stats and figures and all those different things it's uh um, yeah, I I could listen to it. I'm just leaning in, I'm leaning in and just listening to it now. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, so how, you know, in terms of these reflective conversations, you said that's really where the magic happens. Let's dive into some of those. I, because I imagine in terms of that scenario, that's where you're going to get trust and, and rapport really being developed to that point. How does take us through that? What does that look like?
1: I mean, really, I mean, it starts off just like I said, and we end up talking to each other and we end up, I mean, we end up following the route that we said, but I mean, look, everybody's different, right? And, and so as we go through it, you're going to tell some people are a little more cautious at first. It's interesting. Like when I'm in the UK, it's always like next steps. Like that's you, it's been built into administrators to look at next steps. And it's also been built in to look at, to look at things from a deficit mindset instead of a strength mindset. And so like for my leaders in the UK, oftentimes we have to shift their mindset. And as soon as they experience looking at strengths, they see their teachers in a whole new light. And not that they don't love their teachers anyway, but it really, really helps them. And so definitely we look at teachers. We also, we do a student interview in in the observations and we ask them what they're supposed to be learning because it's important regarding whatever our learning objective is to have alignment of intent and impact. But it's, really the form is so specific that as we go over it we're saying things that mean so much more to teachers than what they hear before like even a good observation before it's like oh you're so great with the little kiddos your relationships are great and and your pedagogy is just fantastic and the classroom management super keep it up but now we might say because the form is so specific we might say under formative assessment so It was teacher-led formative assessment, and really it was a combination of observations, conversations, and artifacts of learning as you were circulating the room while the kids were working on the project. And then we might say for the descriptive progress feedback that accompanies that, we might say, and so that was teacher-informal descriptive progress feedback, and really it was basic and instructional and coaching where you're asking questions, feedback to the kids, again, while they were working on the project. And so... As we're saying that, teachers will tell us over and over and over again, because after when I'm on the road training people, we always ask the teachers after every round, what do you think of this model? And so that's one of the main things that they say is, saying that means so much more than hearing what they heard in the first example that I gave. And I didn't even throw a praise word in, and I'll throw praise words in for for real, but it's so specific. And if we think about even the research on praise, right? Good job doesn't do anything. It's good job with whatever I'm doing, right? And so what am I saying? I'm saying exactly what you're doing specifically. And then I'm just going to add to that because it matters. The number one thing the teachers say when we have the reflective conversation afterwards and ask them about it is that I'm already thinking about what to get better at without you even saying anything. And so as we're doing that on formative assessment, descriptive progress feedback, there's two other kinds of formative assessment and descriptive progress feedback, peer to peer and self. So as we're looking at that, they start thinking, oh, I could add peer to peer, right? And so it gets them with sp- their wheels spinning on their own. And so somehow there's just this magic that goes in. And so it, then it becomes just as more time as they, as they get more comfortable. And it, some people are comfortable the first time. Some people take them two, three, four times. But it's so transformatively different. It's so positive as we're pointing out these things that it really doesn't take that long. And then it ends up just being collegial dialogue about practice. And look, at a certain point along the way, of course, we're going to offer a suggestion. But even then, like I said before, that's different. It's supported. So when we offer a suggestion, we look at those nine areas and we say, which one do we think? There's some subjectiveness with that, I readily admit. But if they work on, would have the greatest impact on improving their teaching and learning. And so we go through the, even when we're ready to do it, which again, the first three visits, we don't, unless there's something super egregious happening, uh, we don't jump in and offer a suggestion because we want to really, really demonstrate that this model is different. But when we're ready to offer a suggestion... We go through everything just the same, but then at the end, we ask permission. We say, hey, I have a thought on formative assessment or suggestion. Would you like to hear? That little tiny thing makes a huge difference in the way they respond to what we're saying, asking instead of telling. Because will they do it because I'm your boss? Yeah, but that's strategic compliance. My heart's not into it with strategic compliance. When I ask, somehow that slight little tweak makes me want to own into it with you as you're going to do it. And then we support it, whether it's through pairing you with an in-house expert. And because we're in classes so much, we know who the in-house experts are. Or one other thing about the form that I didn't tell you, which I'm not sure if you know, Alex, is it doubles as a professional development resource. Tool. So in each one of the nine areas of pedagogy, we have the phrase toolbox possibility and a list of strategies that follow it. And each one of those, if you click on the phrase toolbox possibilities, it brings you to a whole new page. And maybe the best part about those pages are there's tons of actionable articles. So then I could read that article. We could go over it together and then say, well, let's look at your plans and see how we can start it tomorrow. right?" And then what am I doing? I'm seeing you three or four weeks later, as opposed to eons later and so then i kind of become coach so all that together it just becomes this collegial learning and growing process
0: yeah we i think think we used to stem it as professional professional conversations conversations, um instead of just one person leading but you mentioned something really interesting in there that i want to pick up on because there's elements of it sounds like coaching in there
1: yeah but there's
0: one there's one thing that you said i'm really really interested in is strengths-based feedback yeah um I'm really interested to dive into that in terms of what that is and what that entails.:
1: Gosh, it's, it, it' It's pretty easy, really. I mean we just when you take the pedagogy out of it, you see what you see. Like in our form, we have uh, so the nine areas are learning targets, relationships, management, uh, cooperative learning, working memory, cognitive load, questioning, formative assessment, descriptive progress feedback and differentiation. And so like every teacher out there, like our list of things that we could see under, um, under relationships or management is enormous. And so I write the tool, which is the strategy. And then I write the words of what you're saying, if it's, if it relates to relationships or management, like people have great little things that they say, or the teacher will share a mistake they made. Like when I share my own mistakes, that's really valuable teachers sharing of themselves. Right. And so we share out those little things. And it's really, it's the specifics of what we're sharing. Like that formative assessment, descriptive progress, feedback, that's, I'm viewing that as a strength. I'm not throwing it out as with a rating of one to four. And, And I mean, if I'm being completely honest, sometimes is it, is it a fairly basic example of that? Yeah, it is, but you're still doing it. And that's a great starting point. So why not highlight that you're doing it right with. And, and so that becomes a strength. As soon as I've taken the ratings out, I'm just sharing what I saw. It's just evidence of what I saw during that 20 minutes. It's, I don't know. It's, it's,
0: no, I think, I think it's great. I, uh, I went on a, uh, I did my coaching course uh, a couple of years ago and the coach leader on there, we talked about like the Gallup strengths. Um, but he said as well as teachers, cause he was an educator. He said, sometimes you need to look at people and ask the question, how can I make your points as in your pointy parts, your strengths, more pointy. And, and we as teachers sometimes, and when we go into observations, just look at the things you can develop. What can you do better? Oh. Ra- yeah, I can see your reaction. Rather than going, you know what? You're really good at this. Let's continue to make that stronger. And actually that strength and you develop it could actually benefit the areas that you want to improve on yeah so i think it's it's wonderful that you're talking about strength-based feedback and almost to some extent you're going into strength-based coaching as there's lots of that the the sort of the the, for my how i'm seeing this and my my sort of take on it has that element of coaching that it's not instructional coaching it's not like you know i'm going to say it, you do it it's this is a two-way conversation and and you're as the, the person who's been observed, you're giving me the feedback, you're constructing the answers, you have ownership, as you mentioned earlier, you've got some a level of ownership over your own development. Then and I think that's really the the key thing for teachers here to have that ownership rather than just be told by someone who maybe hasn't taught for five years. They've been in an office and that's where we get that mistrust because it's like, well, what do you know about pedagogy? You've not taught for the last three years. And we see that quite frequently with teachers when the, that mistrust, as you, as you mentioned earlier. So having that, I think there is is a, is a key fundamental for me and I think a lot of teachers that someone's going to come in and look for what I do well and, and praise me for what I do well.
1: And just to add to that a couple of things. One, because we're in so classes classes so much and we get to see everybody so much now that we're doing this model when you've adopted it. One, my own sense of pedagogy grows just by looking for those things on the form, right? Which allows me to better support you. And I see other people that are super, super strong at something or you're super strong at something. So then I tap into your strength to be able to help each other. But also let's just think about just human nature. Like if, if we want people to be willing to take risks and grow, you've got to have a level of confidence in your abilities be able to take that risk right so if all i'm doing and teachers are so self-critical so overly critical in general to me it's it's crazy and they want to do right so badly and maybe particularly even primary teachers just fit that stereotype i mean throwing out broad stereotypes and so if I'm only talking about what I want you to get better at. Like, how is that building me up a little bit more to make me feel more comfortable to take that risk? I mean, I can tell you, yeah, sure, I, I, I'm going to say great job taking a risk. But when I'm genuinely sharing what you're doing, that builds people up. I, gosh, every week or two, just going through the form and sharing the strengths, you'll see people get teary. And it's like that tells you how foreign it is to them, but it also tells you how powerful that is to them and then what does that lead to later it leads to them feeling safer to take risks because they're more confident because you've just shared what you've seen
0: i think it's amazing um so we talked briefly didn't we previously regarding what we consider more like tick box exercises tick box observations versus development observations so that brings an interesting question in for someone, anyone who's listening or watching this could be going, you know what, we want to do these development styles. We want growth yeah. within our, our faculties, our departments, our teams, as it were. How do you go about connecting, let's say, these individual observations we've got with maybe school-wide, like the bigger picture of a school or the learning community?
1: Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways. Um, so... One way is that so in the program, in year two of trust-based observations, because we now we know who our in-house leaders, I mean who's pretty good at particular each area of pedagogy, we'll go into those teachers and say, Hey, we're gonna start these monthly professional development community meetings and, and where we work on growing in an area of pedagogy and you're so strong, would you be willing to facilitate that? And so we add new, new strategies every month to keep hopefully scaffolding on those over the course of a year, while at the same time at the beginning of the year, even though we don't use a rubric, we provide a self-assessment rubric so teachers can look at themselves in those nine areas of pedagogy, rate themselves, we don't need to see it, and then use that to make an annual SMART goal towards growing in whichever one of those areas of pedagogy that they want to grow in. Now, I'll readily admit that sometimes I might point a teacher or two into a specific area if I feel like they're a little bit off. But but ninety nine percent of the time we we let them choose. And so then they've got a smart goal on that area. So they're saying, I want to get better at this. Now we're saying not only do you get to get better at this because you have annual goals and we've all had annual goal forms. And I've been the guy that's filled out my goals earnestly in September and in May, get the email saying, hey, we're gonna go over your goals. And I've gulped and somehow been able to go back and find them and, and fake my way through it. But now we're saying, no, here's your goal, and I'm gonna give you nine times of nine months of PD on it. And then in the reflective conversation, we also ask another question starting in year two. Talk to me you about your progress on your annual goal, right? So all those things combined to really support your growth in the goal. So I think that's one, that's one thing. And then maybe if I heard you right, what I heard you also saying is how do we maybe manage trust-based observations where from on high or KHDA or ADEC <laughs> uh, we still have to do things in, in, in another way. Was that part of what you were getting at
0: too? Yeah, definitely. Because it's that, as you say, the bigger, the bigger picture schools may have in terms of what we have yeah. to fit in. Whereas these are, you know, those development conversations and observations that come into it. It's finding the bridge, isn't it? It's, it's finding the link that brings those two things together.
1: And, and look, it's, it's tricky. And, and we talked before we went on air about how in, in many states in the US legislation is that you have to do certain models. And so... We're working to try and change that. I'm working with the teachers union. I worked with legislators. I tried to reach out to legislators and they were reluctant. And then a lobbyist uh, friend of mine said, oh, they're afraid of the teachers union. You have to get the teachers union on board first. And so we're in the process of that. And the teachers unions love it because it. How could you not? It's teacher friendly, right? It values them and, and not in a bad way for people that don't like unions, just in a like who wouldn't want something that values people. And, and so and we've got like a, a guy in Idaho that's really trying to get the same thing. The legislation change there for us and because and he's such a big believer in trust based observation. So we think that will start dominoes falling. And and the same thing goes like where does KHDA and Attic, where do those come from? They come from the old Ofsted model, right? The pre two thousand and fourteen Ofsted model, where outside people come in and rate your pedagogy, and and then, oh um, my, like, it's like talk about unhealthy and sick. And we know what happened with that poor head teacher in the UK and in January, February, right? It, it's like that's the trauma that those things can then can cause, and, and and it doesn't work. It doesn't improve teaching and learning. And so maybe so I'm giving this a two pronged answer. And sorry, I'm getting fired up. But no, enjoy. it's it's, it's great. Crazy. It, it is. So the two pronged answer is one, we have to get them to understand like the research that I shared earlier that shows it's not working. Even in the UK, at least they're not coming in individually rating teachers anymore. So why are we still doing it at DNA and Attic? And I don't mean to offend those people, but it's why it doesn't make any sense. And so that's part of it is we got to get them to understand, see the research, and then let's try something else. Sometimes people will say, but if I How do I get rid of a bad teacher then if if I'm not rating their pedagogy? And this isn't my joy to talk about, but because people worry about it, I'm going to talk about it sometimes. Oops, lost my train of thought there. Okay. So I've non-renewed teachers for sure. And you know, when you're in international schools, frankly, it's easier because I don't have unions to deal with every teacher that I've non-renewed, if you're not strong in areas of pedagogy, if you're not a strong teacher, the areas that we do for the summative that we do evaluate for your summative evaluation are professionalism. Are am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Planning and preparation absolutely vital to teaching. Collaboration, collegiality, communication—like teachers have to work with their kids, the parents' kids, their other teachers, and their bosses more than anybody else, right? On a daily basis. And then, like we we call it growth mindset, but really, it's, it's what? You, how are you about professional growth? right? Are you willing to grow with us? And so this is what I'll say. Every teacher that I have non-renewed, when you're not a strong teacher, it falls into those categories too. One, two, three, or all four of them. And so it never prevents me because I think sometimes that's the fear of how do I do that drives these models of Ostad of and, and these traditional evaluation combining them. We have to do that because it but it doesn't have to be combined. So that's one part is we've got to just systemically try and get them to change. But in the meantime, do we like just hold our hands and go, well, I'll start trust based observations when they let us happen? I mean, you know, because if you want to fight them and go to KCA and Attic or go to states like I am, then please do and I'll help but we can't just wait for that for those that can't do that. That's that's an exercise in futility, I think, to some degree. I think we have to get more momentum going. And so I'm going to tell you the truth is that we have people that what they do when they still have to combine the old style with the new is they finesse. And so that might mean that they keep up uh, the the old style Danielson, KHDA Attic, whatever, Ofsted, Evaluation, and then... When it's a, when it's a, every time they do an observation and when it's one that ticks off all the boxes, then they use it for that too, right? They're just playing the game and they just tell people this is what we have to do. We have another school where they have to have mid year conferences with the teachers about their progress. And so, What they do is they do like a a student-led conference. They make it like a teacher-led conference. And they let the teachers with the the evaluative tools rate themselves on that area. And basically, they just say, unless it's a teacher that I have a really big concern about, like maybe that 1% or whatever, 2%, 3%, even if I disagree with them on something and they were to rate themselves higher than I would rate them, who cares They've got a growth mindset. It, none of that has anything to do with it. If the gift of not finding them is that they're more trusting and willing to then grow to get them to where I want to be, I'll take that. Now, if you fit into those other categories, that's a different story. So really, those are my recommendations. Ruffling some fingers, right. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> no, I think this is the thing though. at the moment, especially with, I think a lot of people focusing so much on AI and what it's going to bring and talking about a change yeah. in education, yeah. you know, there's there's more i think we can just look at to start with about can we change education and and, and that's the thing that frustrates me a little bit about it because education when you get down to the definition of it in terms of what it is it's like we're not going to change education i think we're just simply going to change how we do education and i think a starting point with that would definitely be like right, how we develop our teachers day in day out through you know professional conversations and coaching conversations and growth related questioning rather than just you know i say you do type of thing you know we don't want to get down into and i know there's still schools out there that that are like that And, and what you've highlighted there are barriers to change you know and that's the we need to have these conversations about barriers to change um and and the challenges that we have again that you've highlighted um that schools face and states and administration and countries face with that so, yeah. you know, we, we start, we're starting the conversation and we want to keep this conversation going and, and use the evidence and the research and, and teachers who are doing this, which kind of brings us nicely onto the next one that I'm interested in for all the barriers and challenges that we have, you have of this, and, and we have an education, there's got to be some success stories out there. There's got to be schools and areas of people that you work with where, you know, it's, it's really making, making a change and having a huge impact.
1: So I'll say uh, the book came out in September 2020. It was even delayed because of COVID. So it was, it was a scary first year because we couldn't really get it out into schools. And so really, this is just the very start of the third year of being on the road. So we don't have long-term longitudinal data yet, but we think with time we'll get that. But we'll get school leaders that will say things like, uh, the the change in our teachers, the growth in our teachers already is nothing short of remarkable. That's a direct quote. I was in a school that had, uh, two insanely toxic heads before the amazing head that's there now is. So we worked in that school and when we were at that school, there was a teacher that everyone that teacher included would have said they were the most risk averse person in that school. And they had just had some Kagan cooperative learning training, which I'm a huge fan of Kagan cooperative learning. And, um, and the week before we got there and we went in and we did the observation and she did some Kagan cooperative learning. And she said, and so when we went to that school, normally we don't tell the teachers a whole lot about what we're doing before we get there because we just don't want them to worry. We just say you'll love it. The only bad thing is, and then the leaders are on the hot seat, not you. The bad thing is there'll be a bunch of people coming with a laptop, which will feel uncomfortable. But when you have the conversation afterwards, you feel better. And so she did it. She took risk that day. And she said, I never would have done it. But you know, the part where I talk about the goal of trust-based observations, that leader had said, "We, my teachers are so traumatized. Will you meet with them Monday afternoon and tell them everything? And so I did. And she said, I heard you say that. And so I thought, what the heck? And so we go through the reflective conversation. We share all the positives. The school leader that led that reflective conversation in training the next morning says, you guys, I have to tell you something yesterday when I was walking out of that school that teacher came up to me and just said thank you that conversation meant more to me than you'll ever know and gave them a hug and and so and then two days after we left so you can imagine how traumatized the school was right so then now they'd been seven days worth of trust-based observations the school leader writes me and just said just the vibe the culture the energy in the school the healing has become begun you can feel it so, like, that's just one quick little example of of like immediate impact.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I'm I'm all for it. I think uh, the change in use the term professional development. Uh, but that that kind of thing about it. there's a lot of teachers out there and, and in the networks and communities, learning communities that I'm in that want to see that change for better. And I think this is the conversation to, to start that. And I know you've been speaking with a lot of people and doing some fantastic work out there. Um, obviously, as you say, you're just starting through now, 2020, when the book came out, the website's up as well. Where, you know, what's the future you want? Where do you see this and want this to go? <laughs>
1: This, I believe this in my heart. We know there's a teacher shortage, and I don't know if international schools are feeling it, but everywhere else is feeling it. And in my heart, I believe that if trust-based observations was the way of the land, we'd have a teacher surplus, not a teacher shortage. That doesn't mean that teachers shouldn't be paid more in some areas because, of course, some places where they're not paid well, because, of course, they should. But I really, really believe that. So my goal is that, I mean, one, my life's mission for the rest of my life, it's set. So this is it. I know what I'm doing. I wake up every day knowing my goal is to grow the world of teacher observation, that it's the predominant model around the world. So may, I did not want legislation, but if it's legislation, then make it legislation that you're doing this. But that kind of makes me cringe. So let's take that part back. But um, but that's what we want. And, and so just, I mean, for people that are out there listening, tell your boss, get in the books, send to my website, have them listen to the podcast. I'll Zoom with anybody to talk about it. But Um, I highly do recommend training. There's just something to the in-person training that we do that the book, as much as I'm proud of it, just can't simulate. It builds the momentum there in just this indescribably um, amazing, amazing way. I actually, do you mind sharing a little story? Please do. I was was leaving an international school in Phnom Penh, and uh, the school leader and I were walking out. And was a large school and we came across three different teachers separately who we had not observed that week. Cause you can only observe like 12, 14, 15 teachers in a week. And they all said almost verbatim, the same thing. And, and they said it in the exact same wistful tone. And they all said, Oh, I thought you were going to observe me. So like, think about that. Where do you ever have people saying no fair? I didn't get my turn being observed, but then like, I never thought about culture or climate when I wrote the book or when Trust-Based Observations developed, but that's a sign that your culture and climate is transforming like that within the week. And how does that happen? You know how it happens? It happens because after the teachers that have had the reflective conversations that week, they start talking about their experiences. And now observations are now about growth and support and you want them. That's what I want.
0: That's uh, it's amazing. And I think the journey to it and everything you, you have there is uh yeah, I'm I'm enthralled by it. I'm 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 all for it. Uh it resonates with me. You know, building trust and, and and culture, I think, is probably one of the foundations for any successful relationship for a successful team. Um and we know at the moment across the world it, it is in short supply. So, you know, having these conversations and putting these structures and giving teachers and leaders uh, the skill sets as it were the knowledge to be able to do this um i think it's amazing craig and and wish you all the best for the future with this and uh we hope hope to see you i think back i think you've been to the uae before a few times um yeah,
1: we've been here for a while but yeah, yeah exactly. training schools is what we want next so yeah
0: that's it that's it so obviously anyone out there who is listening and watching this and is interested obviously we'll put your contact details and we've got the website and everything else to, to access on and hopefully you know soon we'll, we'll be able to see you back at doing some training rather than just teaching
1: we'll go have an adult beverage together
0: <laughs> i'd love that <laughs> it would be amazing be amazing craig for today thank you ever so much for your time your insight and just sharing this passion with us really really appreciate it thank you
1: thank you alex appreciate it